Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christiania Saturdays. Today is Saturday, February 17th, 2018. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, true Israel, and the eternal enemy of the Jews. And thank you for listening. Tonight we are going to present part four of our series on the phony no-Satan dogma with Clifton Emmerheiser. In the last presentation of the subject, Clifton and I had reached the end of part four of his original series of essays. There are originally six parts. Tonight we, will shall, we, tonight we shall present part five. There we discussed Revelation chapter 12 and how the fall of the angels described in that chapter must have happened in John's past as he wrote. And we also cited the Enoch literature from the Dead Sea Scrolls in relation to those same fallen angels. Likewise, the Apostle Jude described them as the angels that sinned, and the angels which kept not their first estate, but left, past tense, their own habitation. So how anyone can think that John was writing in the future describing the fall of angels in Revelation chapter 12 is a mystery, especially since if the fall of angels is in the future, they would also have to assume that there would be another Messiah in the future, another Messiah besides Yahshua Christ, who was indeed born of the woman and caught up into heaven. Then we spent quite a bit of time discussing the grammatical construct called the substantive and how it is formed from articles and adjectives. Substantives may also be formed from verbs, and especially from either participles or infinitives, which are different forms of verbs, as well as from adjectives. But we concentrated on those substantives which are formed from adjectives as some of the most important and prevalent substantives in the Greek New Testament are indeed formed from adjectives. These are hokristos, hokurios, and hosatanas, or in English, the Christ, the Lord, and the Satan all of them being titles which are used as names in order to refer to or describe a specific being, entity, or individual. We concluded that if Satan is not a reference to a real and specific individual, then Christ and Lord cannot be references to real and specific individuals. The Satan deniers cannot have it both ways. As Clifton pointed out in his original essays, grammatically speaking, the existence of one cannot be denied without denying the existence of the others. As we said before, these are just a few of the paradoxes of scriptural interpretation that are created if the premise is accepted that the flesh is the devil or that the devil is merely the flesh. The Satan deniers create these paradoxes without even noticing their own errors 
simply to justify their denials. Finally, we presented Clifton's expose on the Satan-denying sect of the Christadelphians, where they had argued that the Satan of Luke chapter 4, or Matthew chapter 4, which had challenged Christ over 40 days in the wilderness, was merely a man. We had no argument there, as we also believe that a particular Satan may indeed have been a man. As we have often said, there are so-called people here on earth, and a great number of them, who are not really men, but devils. And any one of them at any given time is indeed a Satan. They are not devils because they sin. All men sin, but all men are not devils. Rather, they are devils because of their genetic origin, which is from the devil, and no amount of good doing can change that for them. Tonight, once again, we have Clifton and my are here with us. Hello, Clifton. Hello. How are you doing? Doing pretty good. Do you have anything to say about the series so far? Well, it's been interesting. It's been interesting. You wrote it. <laughs> I've added a little here and there, but you wrote it. <laughs> this evening, we shall continue with our rather redacted version of Clifton's essays, picking up with Clifton's essays on the phony no Satan dogma, where we left off at the beginning of part five, and perhaps Clifton would like to introduce it for us. At this point, I would like to repeat a paragraph I wrote in part two of this series. This individual scoffs at there being a war in heaven at Revelation 12, 7, but he is overlooking Daniel 10, 13, where the Prince of Persia withstood Gabriel 21 days. Michael coming to assist Gabriel sounds like war to me. Surely this was an angelic war between angelic beings. For those who are familiar with the story of Daniel, know that Yahweh uh, sent Gabriel to Daniel so that the angel could explain to Daniel the vision he was given, Daniel 8:16. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the of Uri, uh, which called and said, "Gabriel, make this man to understand the vision." But here I would like to go further in detail on this story. The next step in this episode was that Gabriel had uh, had difficulty in getting to Daniel to explain his vision, and another archangel, Michael, uh, the same Michael we read about at Revelation 12:7 had to come to Gabriel's aid. We uh, read about Gabriel's detainment at Daniel uh, 10.13. But a prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me one and twenty days. But two, but lo, Michael 
one of the uh, chief princes came to help me and I remained there with the kings of Persia. The four parties here are Daniel, Gabriel, Michael, and the prince of Persia, uh, of the king, the prince of the king of Persia. It is quite apparent here that the prince of the uh, kingdom of Persia was interfering with the movement of Gabriel on his way to show Daniel uh, the significance of his vision. Surely when it speaks here of uh, the prince of the kingdom of Persia, it is not referring to Cyrus, king of Persia, for Cyrus being a mere man could not have blocked the way of an archangel. So the prince of Persia, the prince, so the prince of the kingdom of Persia could only have been another archangel trying to block Gabriel from fulfilling his mission. And doing so only shows that the prince of the kingdom of Persia was in league with Satan. Is not Michael and Gabriel warring against the prince uh, of the prince of the kingdom of Persia? The same ratio as two thirds against one third at Revelation twelve four. Revelation chapter twelve verse four. A third of the angels rebelled. Right. That there are people who may want to dismiss this Daniel. Chapter 10, Daniel 10, Daniel 10, 13, as some sort of allegory. But the language is quite explicit. And furthermore, this being Daniel chapter 10, there is a prophecy which follows this passage that is given to Daniel by the same angel. And that prophecy was fulfilled just over 200 years later. This is found in Daniel chapter 10, verse 20, where in reference to the same angel, Daniel wrote, Then said he, Knowest thou wherefore I come unto thee? And now will I return to fight with the prince of Persia. And when I am gone forth, lo, or lo, or behold, the prince of Greece, or Grecia, shall come. The prince of Greece shall come. Daniel chapter 10 is said to have been written in the third year of Cyrus, the king of Persia. Daniel, writing and keeping time from a Babylonian perspective, we can certainly demonstrate from his book that the third year of Cyrus is counted from the time that Babylon fell to the Persians. So that would be about 537 or 536 BC that Daniel experiences this vision on the river Ulai, right? And, and writes these things. Cyrus became king of the Persians and Medes around 549 BC. He conquered the declining Babylon around 539 BC. And from there, he went off to consolidate his power over the rest of the nations of the Oikumene, the Persian world. Cyrus died in 530 BC. He died in his failed attempt to conquer the Scythians. 
six years after Daniel sees this vision. The Scythians were some of the descendants of the captive Israelites, which dwelt on the north bank of the Araxes River in what is historically known as Armenia. That's where Cyrus the Great was said to have died in 530 BC. 200 years later, the Prince of Grecia, 200 years later, the Prince of Greece, 200 years later, Alexander the Great marched through and conquered the old Persian Empire, fulfilling this prophecy of the angel that, lo, when I am gone forth, the Prince of Greece shall come. The Greek is Javan. Javan was the tribe of, of Greece that controlled and, and inhabited Ionia and the great city of Athens. So this clearly demonstrates the transcendental nature of these words of the angel given to Daniel in his vision. It's transcendental. And I'm going to explain that a little later on, that there is more to the actions of history and world events than what we as men can perceive on the surface from our own limited perspective. But before I continue, here Clifton will offer his own conclusion to Daniel 10.13. This clearly shows that Persia, though a white Adamic empire, had been turned over to Satan. Some people might not like to hear such a thing, but the 12 tribes of Israel, upon being divorced from Yahweh, were also turned over to Satan for seven times for 2,520 years. This can be verified at 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on shine unto them. This passage is directed to them that are lost, verse 3. And it was only the 12 tribes of Israel that had ever been lost. The second passage that will confirm this is found at Acts 26, 18 in red letters to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. <clears throat> this verse should make it uh, unmistakably apparent that Paul was not commissioned to go to some non-Israelite of some non-Israelites whom many uh, errantly term Gentiles, a Latin term that Paul never, ever used. And, and in fact, that was Paul's commission. And, and that commission originally in Acts chapter 9 was to the nations and kings of the sons of Israel. And in Acts tw chapter 26, verses 6 and 7, Paul had told Herod Agrippa II that the struggle for which he struggled and the hope for which he struggled for was a hope for the 12 tribes, a hope which belonged to the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. 
which qualifies what he says later in Acts chapter 26, where he's actually quoting Christ in reference to his own commission. Going back to the Persians and the time of Cyrus the Great, and this vision of the struggle between the angels of Yahweh and the prince of Persia, which is described in Daniel chapter 10, verse 13. Cyrus himself was called a man of gold by Yahweh in the prophecy of Isaiah. I think it's Isaiah chapter 41. And Cyrus certainly also seems to have been blinded by the God of this world. And to understand this, we must understand how empires work. And we are given a hint of that in Revelation chapter 13. There, after a description or, or in a description of two beasts which represent empires that would rule over the Oikumene, the Adamic world, at diverse times, where it is speaking of certain of the world's inhabitants, we are told in chapter 13, verse 4, and they worshipped the dragon, which gave power unto the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? So the people worshipped the dragon first, and the dragon gave its power unto the beast. And then the people also worshipped the beast and marveled at it and said, Who is able to make war with him? In Revelation chapter 13, and in Daniel chapters 2 and 7, world empires are described as beasts, and the dragon gives the beast its power. If we look at the empires of history, they are never strived for and created by a single man. Rather, there are always other powers, other backers, behind the men who rule them in appearance. Empires are really created by consortiums of merchants and priests and bankers and generals, all working in harmony. The powers behind the world's empires have always been the dragon, the world's bankers and merchants, which have always operated in the shadows and behind the scenes. So Clifton was right to proclaim that Persia was given over to Satan, even if its king, Cyrus, was a man of gold. Whenever a nation rises to empire, know that the dragon is using that nation as his own vehicle for world domination. At that time, it was Assyria, Babylon, and Persia. Today, it's Britain. And now America. First it was Britain, now it's America. We have to remember that Daniel was more than a prophet. He was also a statesman. He was taken into captivity at a very young age, being as young as 16, when he was taken with his companions to Babylon in the third year of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, around 605 BC. From then, Daniel's reputation among the Babylonians grew, and he became third in command of the empire, as we read in Daniel chapter 5. 
Now, in the Persian period, in 539 BC, when Babylon fell into the hands of Cyrus, Daniel would be a respected older statesman. Perhaps he would be in his early 80s. And we don't really know how long he had lived beyond that. At this time, the Middle East is pretty much destabilized. The, the, the Near East, I'm sorry, Mesopotamia and Persia is pretty much destabilized because the Babylonian Empire, after the death of Nebuchadnezzar, had grown into decay. There were um, rivals to the throne. There were pretenders to the throne. And it's apparent that the center of power, meaning the people that the bankers and merchants were willing to prop up to support in conquest and to control that the that the the nations, the center of power had shifted to Persia and Cyrus. And at that point, basically, Cyrus and Persia were given over to Satan because they would become another um, stage in that series of beast empires that Daniel foresaw in Daniel chapter two, in Daniel chapter seven in his image of the beast portrayed in Daniel chapter 2. Now, because Clifton had turned to quote from Paul of Tarsus concerning the blindness of Israel, he goes off into a short digression concerning Gentiles. And he wrote that today the meaning of the Latin term gentilis, or Gentile, has been totally corrupted. The original Latin never had the definition of non-Jew. Rather, it meant being of the same race or tribe, from a root word, gens, meaning nation. And Paul never took the gospel to any nations, to any alien nations. Paul makes it very clear at 1 Corinthians 11, 1, Be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. So don't ever accuse Paul of starting a new religion. And inasmuch as Yahshua Christ himself said at Matthew 15:24, but he answered and said, I am not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So neither did Paul go to anyone other than the lost sheep of the house of Israel or he could have never have made such a statement as he did at 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. When Paul's own words are properly translated and understood at 2 Corinthians 6.14, it is ridiculous to ever say that he went to non-Israelites the King, the KJV translates it, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? William Fink, in his letters of Paul, has a better rendering. Uh, 
Do not become yoked together with untrusty aliens for what uh, participation has justice and lawlessness. So here Paul is warning us to have nothing to do with aliens and those of unlike race. Therefore, since Paul has cautioned us to totally avoid aliens, it is absurd to claim that Paul himself went to non-Israelites. We must uh, next determine why white Adamic peoples can be and are turned over to Satan and the non-Adamic are already of uh, satanic origin and categorically different. The first passage that addresses this is found at uh, 1 Corinthians 5, verses 4 and 5. In, in the name of our Prince Yahshua Christ, when ye are gathered together and my spirit with the power of our Prince uh, Yahshua Christ to deliver such a one over to deliver one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Prince Yahshua. Well, well, that is the first passage which we see that in, in the New Testament explicitly. I, I think it's in the New Testament earlier than that, but it's not explicit where Christ tells the apostles that they have the power to bind and loose. And to loose is to release a disobedient person, I believe, in, into the general world so that he would be destroyed by Satan. They have the power to bind and to loose. And, and I think that's what it means. That's why I interpret it. But you are right. This is the first place where it becomes absolutely explicit and absolutely clear that we can turn over our disobedient brethren to Satan by putting them out of our community. But it is also true, as Clifton said of Persia at the time that it became an empire, it is also true that entire nations can be turned over to Satan, as well as individuals. And one example of entire nations being turned over to Satan is found in Isaiah chapter 43, verse 3. There the word of Yahweh speaks to the children of Israel, and he says, For I am Yahweh thy God, the Holy One of Israel, the Savior. I gave Egypt for thy, for thy ransom, Ethiopia and Seba for thee. And here we have Yahweh saying that he gave up three other nations, great nations, for the sake of the children of Israel. Now, we see with the Assyrian invasions that the Israelites are turning to Egypt for help. Yahweh gave up Egypt and Ethiopia and Sheba. Who did he give them up to? And why did he give them up? I believe he gave them up so that the children of Israel would be taken off into captivity. He wanted them taken off into captivity. He didn't want the Egyptians to be able to defend them to be able to help them withstand the Assyrians. So that's why he gave them up. But who did he give them up to? Ethiopia, Egypt, or Cush, 
Cush, Ethiopia is also Cush, it's Cush in Hebrew. Egypt, Ethiopia, and Sheba, or Seba, were all great white nations at one time. And here Yahweh says that he gave them over in Isaiah 43.3. Around that same time, these nations had been overrun with Nubians. They were overrun with Negroes. So we can certainly see who Yahweh is talking about when he says he gave them over. By the time that Christianity was established in Northern Europe and all of the lost children of Israel were reconciled to Yahweh in Christ, the rest of the old world had also been overrun with the Arabs and the Turks and other non-white races. So virtually all of the Adamic peoples except the remnant of Israel were given over to Satan. They were mixed with the other races in whole or in part by the time that all of Europe had accepted Christianity. All of the rest of the old Adamic world was given over to, to Satan. And we can see, if Yahweh says that he gave a nation over, who's he giving it over to, his friends or his enemies? And if that nation that Yahweh says he gave over is overrun by niggers, how is that not being overrun by Satan? <laughs> and we see that happening in America today. Yeah, we see it all over again. However, you, yeah, you now you elaborate on your explanation that individuals can always be can, can also be turned over to Satan. If you have, if you have some man in a family or woman, as far as that goes, next of kin or by marriage, and after taking marriage vows, still wanting to run after the opposite sex, and he can't keep a padlock on his private parts, even some single man, uh, man who uh, would humble his mother, or even his mother-in-law, Paul instructs Christians uh, are to turn such a one over to Satan in the name of Yahshua so that that person will either straighten up or find himself physically impaired or not live very long. Paul himself made such a request at Galatians 5 verses 11 and 12. And I, brethren, if I yet preach circumcision, why do I yet suffer persecution? Then is the offense of the cross ceased. I would, I would they were even cut off, which trouble you. To be cut off here means literally for Yahweh to turn them over to Satan and if, if, necessary kill them and circumcision wasn't the only issue here as it speaks of leaven at verse 9 which would include any kind of false doctrine no satan theology is a false doctrine and those promoting it can also be turned over to satan for their correction or destruction the same thing goes for all those who deny and repress the teaching of the two seed lines, 
of Genesis 3.15. We are not talking about some uh, petty infraction or minor violation. Another passage which uh, addresses a similar kind of matter is found at 1 Timothy 1.20, quote, of whom, uh, I, I can't pronounce it. Hymenaeus. Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered unto Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme, unquote. If you don't think that this includes teaching false doctrine, check verse 4. Paul spells it out uh, here in verses 9 and 10. Uh, disobedient murders of fathers of, or mothers, manslayers, whoremongers, homosexuals, kidnappers, liars, perjurers, or any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. Paul himself admitted that he had formerly been a blasphemer and deserved what he petitioned for Hermenus and Alexander at verse 20, and Paul thanked Yahweh at verse 13 for his mercy because he had done it ignorantly in unbelief. Apparently, Hermenus and Alexander knowingly blasphemed. So, so they blasphemed and Paul turned them over to Satan, meaning that he turned them out of Christian fellowship and turned them over to the world. And, and that's what happened to that man in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 that couldn't keep his pants up and went after his own stepmother, his father's wife, right? Mm -hmm. and, and he was turned over to Satan by being put out of the Christian assembly. Well, we recently put a couple of people out of the Christian assembly of Christogenia. So we turn them over to Satan, basically. And, and we pray that Yahweh punishes them for their blasphemy, right? It's doing the same thing. We just disassociate from them and, and make imprecatory prayers so that they're corrected. We hope that they're corrected, right? And, and like you said, they're turned over to Satan so that they either learn not to blaspheme or that they're punished for their blasphemy, one or the other, and and that's the that that's that that's a um, a fair Christian action because that's exactly what Paul of Tarsus did. So turning people out into the into the pagan world, into the in, into the general population, putting them out of your Christian fellowship, you're basically turning them over to Satan, and and that's a uh pretty serious situation to to do do to a person well, well right especially in ancient rome especially in ancient rome where christians were so few in number and so scattered and and we have that situation again today do we not uh, i mean we're nothing like the judeo christians the judeo christians are basically the pagans of ancient rome Concerning individuals being turned over to Satan, you then say the scripture does not leave us totally in the dark to question what could happen to a person if the Almighty permits Satan to touch our lives. For all we need to do is go to the book of Job. Now, at this point, you discuss a certain Satan denier and his failure to mention Job in any of his papers on the subject. And you ask... 
How could anyone do a paper on Satan, pro or con, without addressing the experience of Job? I suggest, meaning you, Clifton, I suggest that this was a deliberate oversight, for had he, abre- had he addressed Job, it would have destroyed his little play-pretty hobby horse theory, meaning that there's no Satan, or that Satan is the flesh. Whatever happened to the word, the whole word of Yahweh or Yahshua? And, and in Job, right? In Job, Yahweh sees Satan and asks him where he was, and Satan said he was walking up and down in the earth, right? So how could that be Job's flesh? That That's just ridiculous. That, that's just a ridiculous assumption. How could... How could anybody make that claim? How could anyone do a paper on Satan, pro or con, without addressing Job's experience? In the first chapter of Job, we are told that Job lived in the land of Uz, a perfect, upright, God-fearing, evil-despising man, having seven sons and three daughters, plus sheep, camels, oxen, and asses, almost without number. Being the richest man of the East, Job's greatest concern was for his ten children, interceding to Yahweh almost constantly for them. But his children seemed to have been quite self-centered, making great feast days by celebrating each of their respective birthdays. Maybe they drove to Destin. By eating and drinking, whatever eating and drinking implies. Evidently, Job's servants did all the work, and his children spent all their time playing. And that is how the book of Job reflects the life of Job and his children. Then at verse 6, we are told that there was a day for all of the... Now, you call them first estate angelic beings, and I don't necessarily agree with that, but we're just going to proceed with this, and, and I'll explain myself later. There was a day for all of the first estate angelic beings to come before Yahweh to present themselves. And Satan crashed the party. Then Yahweh inquired of Satan what he had been doing. Satan braggingly answered that he had been surveying all of his earthly kingdom. That's when Satan said that he was walking up and down in the earth, right? In in Job chapter 1. Whereupon Satan asked, Yahweh asked Satan, I'm sorry, if he had ever appraised the virtue of his servant Job, that in all of Satan's earthly domain, There was no other that could measure up to his uprightness in fearing Yahweh and despising evil. Replying, Satan asked, does not Job have much to gain by fearing you? Have have not you planted a hedge about him and his house on every side? Have you not increased his land and substance, but withdraw all these things from him and he will curse you to your face? That this is Satan challenging Yahweh, right? So this isn't Job's flesh challenging Yahweh. Why would Job's flesh invite suffering upon Job? Because then the flesh would be doing without all of its enjoyment. How does that make sense? That's that's a ridiculous proposition. How would my flesh want me to do without food and water where my flesh is going to suffer, not my spirit? My flesh is going to suffer for being without food and water first because the flesh is going to die. How would my flesh want to see me punished? How could Satan be my flesh? It would be begging for itself to be punished. How does that make sense? If Satan is the flesh, it makes no sense at all. 
Satan can't be the flesh. Satan must be a separate personal entity outside of Job. Satan is a person that is not Job. That these no Satan people are, are incredibly absurd in, in their scriptural interpretations. You may want to read your conclusion to this predicament. Here it is revealed that Yahweh plants a hedge of defense around his people to protect them from Satan's machinations, plots or schemes in this world, which is Satan's domain. But woe to any individual or group if uh, this hedge of protection is removed. While on the subject of hedges, it should be mentioned that Yahweh placed a hedge to prevent the, uh, the Israel tribes after going into captivity from ever successfully returning to what the uh, Romans later designated as Palestine. A few Scythians attempted to return uh, to Palestine, and one town was uh, referred to as Scythiopolis for many uh, centuries after, but it was a very short-lived and unsuccessful venture. Under the influence of the Roman church, many Israelites who uh, know as, uh, who we know as Crusaders returned to Palestine at a directive of the Pope, which also turned out to be a tragic disaster. This crusader business tells us two things. One, that it is dangerous to attempt to enter where Yahweh has decreed that one should not uh, go, and two, that the Roman Pope has not... Uh, that the Romish Pope was not inspired of Yahweh to send the Israelites back to Palestine to fight for his political gain. Therefore, the Romish Pope is not the vicar of Christ as he claims, for uh, does he, or, or nor does he represent anything Christian. What further proof do we? need to understand that the present-day bad fig Jews returning to Palestine are not true Israelites. Why should Yahweh's hedge not pre... Uh, why is uh, Yahweh's hedge not preventing that uh, so-called return? So the Jews were Israel, they shouldn't be able to go back to Palestine. So they're really dumb. They're not Israel. The fact that they're able to go back to Palestine shows that they're not in Israel because Yahweh put a hedge that they couldn't, that Israel couldn't return. Mm -hmm. Which is why we've never been successful going back to Israel. The British were basically run out of there with Jewish terrorism. The French were run out of Lebanon with Jewish terrorism. Let's say that, um, uh, you, you mentioned this, that this Yahweh being able to plant a hedge around his people to protect them from Satan's machinations. The Garden of Eden is an allegory for such a hedge. As long as Adam and Eve didn't sin, Satan couldn't harm them. But once they sinned, they were expelled from the garden. In other words, Yahweh's hedge was lifted. 
so that they would they would have to toil and struggle to 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 support themselves and and to make it in the world. That's how I see the Garden of Eden in that same way. It was as long as they didn't sin, it was a protection. It it was a a, a um, safe harbor for them. It was allegorical of that. So the Garden of Eden is very much like the hedge that Yahweh put around Job. You continue to describe Job, and, and you say in your paper that at Job chapter 1, verse 12, Yahweh declares to Satan, And Yahweh said unto Satan, Behold, all that he has is in thy power. Only upon himself put not forth thine hand. So Satan went forth from the presence of Yahweh. Here Yahweh removes his hedge of protection surrounding Job, and Satan is allowed to commence his dirty work. We will next begin to fathom that what can happen once Yahweh has removed his protective hedge from us. Hedges are a two-way street. They prevent us from entering areas where we should not go and protect us from the wiles of Satan, Satan himself and his genetic satanic children. We will now illustrate how Satan can use people and the powers of nature to bring about the destruction of anyone who is turned over to him. At Job chapter 1, verses 13 through 15, we read, And there was a day when his sons and his daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house. And there came a messenger unto Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the asses feeding beside them, and the Sabians fell upon them and took them away. Yea, they have slain the servants with the edge of the sword, and I only am escaped to tell thee. The Sabians appear to have been marauding raiders based in southwest Arabia, near to the present-day Yemen. They were centrally located in respect to merchandising for trade with Africa and India, trading in gold, incense, gemstones, and slaves. So it would appear that at least some of Job's family were taken into slavery, along with what goods the Sabians could confiscate. It should be evident that the Sabians were Satan's agents to do his bidding, as also was Job's wife, who told Job to curse God and die, as Satan said he would. This same type of thing can happen today for anyone turned over to Satan. I wonder whatever happened to the two men that Paul turned over to Satan, Hymenaeus and Alexander. I'm afraid we'll never know, right? We'll, we'll just never know until maybe the last day. Satan's next assault on Job's family is recorded in verse 16. While he was yet speaking, there also came another and said, The fire of God has fallen from heaven and has burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I only am escaped alone to tell thee. In this verse, none of Job's children are mentioned, but it would appear that some of Job's buildings were struck with lightning and much of Job's livestock were destroyed. Again, it is apparent that Satan has at least some control over nature's forces. And if one is turned over to Satan, one can be struck by lightning or some other natural force in the twinkling of an eye. Once turned over to Satan, one cannot hide. And what Satan aims at, he will not miss. It kind of makes one shudder just to think about it. I remember about 60 years ago, that, that was um, probably about 1948. I remember about 60 years ago, 
I was over at my grandparents' house, and an electrical storm came up about 11, 10 to 11 o'clock at night, and the lightning was striking so continuously that one could have read a newspaper by the light from the lightning alone. And it lasted that way for approximately an hour. So I can just imagine what happened to Job's sheep at the hand of Satan. <laughs> I guess they were all barbecued, eh? <laughs> the third assault on Job's possessions is recorded at verse 17. While he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, The Chaldeans made out three bands and fell upon the camels and have carried them away. Yeah, and slain the servants with the edge of the sword, and I only am escaped alone to tell thee. It is clear that the Chaldeans were a tribe from Syria who moved into Babylon long before the time of Abraham, and eventually became the dominant political force there. They were originally white, but how much admixture of other races they acquired, for instance, Kenites, Canaanites, etc., is debatable. I can only say that Nebuchadnezzar was considered a man by Yahweh who would be given the heart of a beast allegorically. So Nebuchadnezzar, at least, still seems to have been an Adamic man, right? At this point, Job had lost some of his children, his oxen, or in modern terms, his tractor, grain planters, and reaping combine, and farm truck. In short, Job was out of the farming and ranching business. And if Job had to travel any place, he would have to walk or hitchhike, jeopardizing transportation, clothing, and food, which one Satan denier claims is all imaginary. Do you want to read your final comments on Job? <clears throat> but Satan wasn't finished with Job yet, and he strikes again at verses 18 through 19 thusly. While he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, uh, The sons of thy daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house. And behold, there came a great wind from the wilderness and smote the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young men, and they, uh, they are dead." And I only am escaped alone to tell thee. It appears that uh, the children of Job that were not taken into slavery by the Sabians were killed by a tornado. Uh, now I never did fear lightning and wind, uh, uh, and lightning still doesn't bother me. But about three years later, my grandparents' house uh, in my uh, uh, but about three years later, at my grandparents' house again, one Saturday evening, about ten o'clock uh, in the month of May, I was getting ready to take a bath after a hard day's work. It was uh, on a very warm, balmy evening. Uh, with not a leaf stirring on the trees. And just as I stepped into the bathtub, all of a sudden something hit the house, which uh, I would compare to a semi-truck. Then it sounded like about 500 women screaming at the top of their 
voices uh, 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 seeming to be about 500 to 1,000 feet above the house. Going to the uh, basement just before the lights went out, the dust began to stir up around the 12 by 12 inch sills of the foundation. The wind lasted only a couple of minutes and again it turned very still and quiet and the stars came out. There were uh, only about three or four buildings damaged in the path of about four miles and my grandparents house had minor damage so it was only a small tornado but I would hate to be in a full-blown F4 or F5 but uh, the point I'm trying to get across is that Job's that in Job's case a tornado was a device used and controlled by Satan you you so, so this tornado hit your grandparents house and it was only minor damage and it it made that loud of an impact yeah, I've I, never experienced a tornado. I, I mean, there are tornadoes that have missed me by I a few miles. I headed for the basement, but... and I could see the sills of the house, and, and there's dust stirring around the, the sills. So, so were you thinking about Job in the basement? <laughs> I was shaking that house so hard. Probably not, eh? I could imagine. I, I could imagine, but I can't imagine because I've never kind really of felt experienced maybe it. Maybe that house is going to go any, any minute. Uh, the powers of nature right are second, incredible. I guess. You proceed with another example of such a storm, citing Mark chapter 4, verses 37 through 39, which records Christ and his disciples crossing the Sea of Galilee when a storm arose. And you say that awakening, Yahshua commanded, peace be still. And that that was actually in, in the Greek perfect tense, peace be muzzled. The sea being calm enough for sleep, was the storm a water spout or a tornado because it was so sudden? Because they were sleeping on a sea, and then all of a sudden, this storm arose from what seemed like out of nowhere, right? From Job chapter 1, we read, and I'm going to start with verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before Yahweh, and Satan came also among them. And Yahweh said unto Satan, Whence comest thou? Then Satan answered Yahweh and said, from going to and fro in the earth and from walking up and down in it. Now, it could be argued that, and, and I understand that all of the old time identity people in Swift and Copperay thought that Job was the oldest book in the Bible. And that it may have even been from the first earth age, right? And, and I understand that. And I read that stuff too, but I gave the book of Job a lot of consideration over the years. It can be argued that Job was an Israelite of the judges period and that his friends are descendants of the Edomites and Ishmaelites who dwelt in the south of Judah or just over the border in Edom. Now, if, 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 because I can't really prove that, if that is the case, then this Satan may very well have been an intruder among the Israelites who went to the tabernacle in the wilderness whenever the children of Israel gathered there at the prescribed times throughout the year. There were three times three, three when times, all of the children yeah. of Israel were commanded to gather before Yahweh at the tabernacle in the wilderness, at the three feasts, right? So some Jew could have slipped in there and, and 
in, in the book of Job, it's described that Yahweh said to this Jew, to this Canaanite, this kike, what the hell are you doing here? And the kike said, oh, I was just walking up and down in the earth. Well, it seems like we run into Eli James every, uh, every once in a while. Yeah, right, or or one of his cousins, right? Now, now, the names of Job's three friends and their connection to the Edomites and Israelites, or Ishmaelites, I'm sorry, along with another individual. There's another individual, and this is what wins me over to the point that Job was written during the Judges period, okay? This is what does it for me, right? There's another individual who we read about in Job chapter 32. And that informs me that Job was probably an Israelite of the Judges period. And further evidence is found, and I'll discuss that other individual in a moment, but further evidence is found because of the presence of the Tetragrammaton throughout the book of Job. The word Yahweh is used throughout the book of Job. And if the word Yahweh wasn't revealed until Moses in Exodus chapter 3, then how could the book of Job contain the word Yahweh over and over again, unless Job is from the Israelite judges period? You see what I mean? No, I, I never... Now, Swift and Compare claim that Job was much older than that. I understand. And a lot of old-time CI people understood that Job was much older than that. But that's my point of contention. And my second point of contention is in Job chapter 32, where we read, Then was kindled the wrath of Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzite of the kindred of Ram. Against Job was his wrath kindled because he justified himself rather than God. The most notable Ram in scripture of the kindred of Ram was the father of Aminadab. Aminadab was an ancestor of David early in the land of Judah. Aminadab is Ram and Aminadab is the line that Boaz came from. And David came from Boaz with roots, right? In the land of Judah. So I believe that Job was of that Ram from that period. That's my opinion. And I could show that with this that this Elihu in Job chapter 32. So that, that's my opinion, that Job isn't really as old as Swift and Compare believed it was, that it was from, Job was really an Israelite of the Judges period. But many people also use, many people use Job chapter 2 verse 3, the way it reads in the King James Version, to assert that it was Yahweh who did all of these evil things to Job in Satan's behalf. But that is not what I see in the Septuagint. And, and I'm going to dig out Job chapter 2, verse 3, right? And it says, And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that fears God and eschews evil. And still he holds fast his integrity. Although thou movest me against him to destroy him without cause. So a lot of people say that because that says the way that's worded in the Masoretic text that Yahweh did all those horrible things to Job. I don't accept that. And I'm going to explain why I don't accept it. 
in the Septuagint version, and you could get the um, the New English translation of the Septuagint online, and you could look up the the NET of the Septuagint on Job and download it for free. The New English translation of the Septuagint, and it's very similar to my translation. And I would translate Job chapter two verse three in the Septuagint to read. Then you have noticed, my servant Job, that there are none like him of those in the land, an innocent, true, blameless, devout man, keeping distant from all wrong. And he maintains innocence, although you, Yahweh speaking to Satan, although you spoke to destroy his possessions without cause. That's the way the Septuagint reads. Yahweh does not take credit for doing that to Job in the Septuagint only in the Masoretic text. So we have a disparity there. So the shame is that the verse is missing in the Dead Sea Scrolls. There are only fragments of Job which exist in the Dead Sea Scrolls. But I do not accept the reading of Job chapter 2, verse 3 in the Masoretic text. The Septuagint does not reflect the idea that Yahweh took him, that Yahweh himself took an active role in the destruction of Job. Verse 7 in that same chapter, verse 7 says, So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot unto his crown. Verse 7, in that same chapter, Satan did it, not Yahweh. Okay? So I think that Job chapter 2, verse 3, in the Masoretic text, is corrupt, and I prefer the Septuagint reading, because Yahweh says to Satan that Satan spoke to to destroy him, to, to destroy his possessions without cause, without reason. Okay, so that's a contention that people raise, that the no Satan people raise about this, that this story in Job, as if Yahweh did it all to Job, so there really ain't a Satan. That's what they claim. And, and that the Septuagint and... Job 2, verse 7, prove them to be wrong. Both those passages prove them, prove the Satan deniers to be wrong. And of course, the things which befell Job were, were within the permissive will of Yahweh, and Yahweh is more powerful than any, any Satan, but Yahweh does allow men to be chastised by Satan in order to be tried. That's Peter talks about the trial of your faith in, in 1 Peter chapter 1. And, and Job's faith was tried in the same manner that many Christians' faith has been, have been tried, right? And, and that's the way I see that. But in any event, in any event, the book of Job proves with all certainty that there is a personal Satan. You can't deny it from the book of Job in the form of a man who can walk up and down in the land, who can walk up and down on the earth. And when you look at that Satan walking up and down in the earth, isn't that the curse of Cain? Cain was sentenced to be a vagabond in the earth, yeah. to walk up and down in the earth. And, and with that, I want to describe Nod from Genesis. And a lot of people don't understand this, but Nod in Hebrew means wandering. Cain went off to the land of wandering when he was cast out of the garden. But the idea of wandering in ancient philosophy and ancient 
allegorical language, and this is very often occurs in the Old and New Testaments. The idea of wandering means to go into sin. When you go into sin, you are wandering from the straight path. So Cain went off into the land of sin. Yahweh planted a hedge in the Garden of Eden, a protection for Adam and Eve as long as they didn't sin. And they were expelled from it. So they went off into the land of wandering too. Because everything outside of that Garden of Eden was under the control of Satan and the fallen angels who had gone off into sin. That's the way I look at that land of Nod in, in, in Genesis chapter 4. That the land of Nod is everything outside of the purview of Yahweh, which is sin. And that's where Cain went, and, and eventually that's where Adam and Eve were expelled to. You may want to read um, your response to what happened to Job. Today, Satan doesn't necessarily need a lightning or windstorm to take away one's property. For all he needs do is to have one of his satanic Jew children uh, call in one's mortgage, especially if there's only... Uh, a couple of installments remaining to be paid. And what do we use today but satanic Jew money to pay off these payments? In which case, all Satan need do is to decrease the money supply to accomplish the same objective. Today, the satanic Jew children of Satan have a mortgage on their on the entire world, which uh, the no Satan crowd blame uh, on one's own flesh. As the term Satan is used many times in the Bible, the no Satan crowd cannot deny that it says, so they perform a little hocus pocus. Now you see it, now you don't and make uh, it claim that Satan is, is the flesh, meaning everyone's flesh. Among others, that would make us Israelites, Satan, or the devil. The problem with that flawed supposition is it would also make Yahshua Christ himself Satan, or the devil, for he was Yahweh in the flesh. Uh, some may use the argument that Christ overcame the flesh. Well, that won't work either, as Yahshua Christ was still in the flesh in his glorified body at Luke uh, 24, uh, 39, where he said, Behold my hands and my feet, that it is myself, handle me and see for a spirit hath not flesh uh, and bones as you see me have. Therefore, if the flesh is the devil, as the no Satan crowd claims, then Yahshua Christ was Satan, and after his crucifixion and resurrection, after his crucifixion and resurrection, if that were true, which uh, surely isn't, 
by that same uh, perverted criteria, uh, when we are resurrected in the flesh and Christ returns and uh, is crowned king over his kingdom, he will, uh, he as well as we will be satanic devils. All kinds of ambiguities occur when twisting the scripture. That there's no no way that there's no way to get away from Satan if Satan is the flesh, and the fate of all of us is to be Satan. That that that's basically your conclusion. That that's the only valid conclusion from these people who claim that Satan is the flesh. It, it's a rather ridiculous conclusion. It, it's how it's a rather ridiculous premise. You ended this paper with a quote from one of my essays. Maybe I can read the last paragraph for you. To borrow a paragraph from William Fink's article, Sin and the First Epistle of John. All those who purport that the devil is the flesh are little more than modern day Sadducees because they deny the existence of a devil. They deny the existence of a devil. They deny the existence of demons. They deny the existence of, of anything spiritual, basically. They're no more than modern-day Sadducees who in vanity pretend that all which creation consists of must lie before their half-blind eyes. And, and I refer to people, I, I refer them to Romans chapter 1 verse 20 and Hebrews chapter 11 verse 3 where Paul talks about the unseen things of creation, the invisible things of creation. And therefore, they deny half of their Bible while pretending to be Christians. So the Satan deniers are really in league with the ancient Sadducees, that they have a lot of these same ideas. Acts chapter 23, 8 says in part, For the Sadducees say there is neither angel nor spirit. Is this not precisely the same doctrine that no Satan people are promoting? What then distinguishes them from the Sadducees? And were not the Sadducees even more vile than the Pharisees? And Christ never went and dined with the Sadducees. Never. Not once. Christ reached out to Pharisees. He went and dined with them. He joined with them in their homes. He preached to them. But he never reached out to Sadducees. The Sadducees accosted him a couple of times. But he never went to them and, 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 and tried to persuade them that the Sadducees were much more vile than the, than the Pharisees because they, they, well, first I believe they were all Edomites, and there's evidence for that in Acts chapter 5. But all of these high priests that Josephus mentions throughout the time of Judea from Herod Archelaus unto the destruction of Jerusalem, that maybe 60 or 65 year period, Josephus explains they were all Sadducees, and they were from two different families, the families of Ananus and Caiaphas. And they, those two families were intermarried. And one or the other had a, a male descendant that was the high priest appointed by Herod for 65, 70 years. And they were Edomites. They weren't Israelites. The apostles in Acts chapter 5 wrote of all that were of the race of the high priest, the genos of the high priest, 
Now, why would they talk about the race of the high priest if the high priests were the race of Israel? Why would they distinguish that? So there's evidence in scripture that those Sadducees were Edomites and they were denying everything spiritual. Do you have any conclusions? We have um, one more paper left in this series that we'll present in the near future. Well, uh, not, not particularly. Have you got any? No, I just gave all my conclusions. Yeah. Do you have anything to say about anything else? Well, it's, it's, uh, it's an interesting subject and uh, one that should have been talked about more. It's an important subject. It's a subject we have to get right. We have to understand that these other races and these Jews and these Arabs, they're basically all satanic entities. They are all Satan. Well, the, the only the only true uh, children of Yahweh are uh, Adamites. Absolutely. That's who he created. And none of these others were created by Yahweh. They're beasts. They're, they're beasts um, allegorically, but they're not the beasts of his creation. The beasts of his creation are four-legged, generally. <laughs> okay, well, we'll end it here. And, and thanks for being here this evening, Clifton. And we will um, we'll do the last portion of the series soon. And then maybe over the summer or later this spring, we'll do something else. Maybe you'll have a, an, another idea. Well, it's been interesting. Thank you, everybody, and good night.